So they were trying to really live an ethical life, and so there they were, these people walking around in January through the snowdrifts in, in shoes made out of linen. <laughs> these are the first hardcore vegans in our country, actually. But as a little kid, for me, growing up in Concord, I had no idea about this. And we, we were ra I was raised in a family that ate the usual food. We ate huge amounts of meat and dairy products and eggs. And I never questioned it. I honestly never questioned it. I had no... I had no reference point to question it. I remember at one point I asked my mother, is this how everybody eats? And she said, yep, that's how everybody eats. And then she said, well, there are vegetarians. And she said it in a way that made me think, all right, you know, they don't exist. I mean, they, they live on another planet somewhere. We never, you'll never meet one, don't worry. Just, <laughs> they're just beyond strange, you know. So, um, so that was it, so I never questioned it. And I remember when I was about 11, 12, maybe 12 years old, 13 years old, I went away to a um, summer camp in Vermont. And I think it's really important just to um, briefly tell the story because the, um, a lot of people think that you know, milk, if it comes from an organic dairy, it must be like nectar from the gods. You know, it must be some kind of great, healthy thing. And actually, there's a lot of misery and cruelty on all dairies. And I saw this myself, actually, a little bit because I remember being at this dairy, and it was, uh, again, I was maybe 12 or 13 years old, and um, at one point we were all taught to catch our own chickens. I remember I caught my chicken, and I was taught how if you catch the chicken, and when you put her down on this board, and you put her neck through the two nails, and you have your axe in the other hand, and you cut her head off, and she runs around with no head, spotting blood, and then you eat the chicken. And so I remember, um, feeling fine about that, because I, by the time I, I'd gone through 13 years of uh, indoctrination and programming, and I knew uh, that you know, the animals uh, are put here by God for us to eat. They don't have a soul, and if you don't eat them, you will die in 24 hours of a protein deficiency, and you'll just kill over and die. And that's the truth, and that's how God set it up. And you know, you don't question it. I mean, that was it. So, the, and, and you know, and there was such a sense of it's just a chicken. It's like you know, it's like a, a stone or a stick or a chicken. You know, it's all the same thing. So, um, so we did that, but then I remember a little later in the summer, there was a cow that had been selected, and this cow was not giving enough milk. I remember Madeline and I went to uh, the, the world headquarters of Heifer International in uh, Little Rock, Arkansas a few years ago, and they informed us there at Heifer International, you, know, you all know Heifer International, <laughs> they informed us that animals are put here on this earth for the four M's. Does anyone know what the four M's are? Meat, milk, manure, and money. That's their purpose. That's the purpose of animals, is the four M's. So that's what I learned on when I was, you know, 12 or 13 years old at the summer camp. She was, this cow uh, was standing on, you know, there's a cow standing on the floor of the barn and she wasn't look, looking too happy. We kind of all gathered around and the guy told us, you know, she's not giving enough milk, so we're going to use it for me. And so we killed the cow and we ate her. And uh, it was, but it was not like killing a chicken because killing a chicken is, it's, well, I mean, it's the same thing. They both don't want to die, but one is much bigger. This is a 1,500-pound animal. And when we, sh you know, after three shots, and she finally went down, and then he cut her head off with his, like this, and the blood went, you know, these arcs through the air, and, and he wiped his, uh, and, and it was just so graphic, and this gigantic being just convulsing on the floor and everything, and. Um, I remember being shocked by the whole thing. I mean, it was incredible. All this feces and urine everywhere, the whole thing was just incredible. 
And then uh, he wiped his brow very uh, matter-of-factly, very calmly, really, and he, he said, um, after he cut her juggler veins here, uh, carotid arteries, I guess there, he, um, he said, uh, you have to do that because otherwise the meat would be disgusting. It would be soaked with blood and no one would ever want to eat it. You know, you've got um, to do that right away. You've got to actually, their heart has to actively pump the blood out of the flesh of the animal, otherwise it's soggy and no one will eat it. They don't like soggy meat. You know, it shows how predatory we actually are. But anyway, so I remember, you know, as the years went by later, and I, after I became a vegetarian, and I just did a lot of research into what goes on in slaughterhouses, and I realized that is the reason, that is basically the main reason why animals suffer so horrifically in slaughterhouses is because we humans don't like soggy meat. You know? So you can't just kill a chicken or a pig or a cow or a turkey or a goat or however you're doing, or a lamb. Uh, just kind of kill them somehow and then come back a little later after they're dead and cut them all up. And you can't do that because the meat would be all bloody and soggy. And, you know, so, so you have to actually hang them upside down by one leg and cut their arteries and let them bleed to death. And that's why very often they're still um, conscious while they're being skinned or while they're being disemboweled and so forth. That's what's ha that is what's happening to them. It's very common. And when it's on a person's plate, they don't know what happened, you know, how that animal died, you know, what terror and fear and agony they went, went through. But that's just basically part of the system because we have to have them actively pumping their blood out of their flesh. So as a little kid, I saw all that and I was like, wow, that's pretty intense. But God, that's what God wants, so this must be okay, you know. And so I never really questioned it at all. And I remember um, the following year, we went back to this um, wonderful dairy in, in Vermont, and um, the same thing, we did the same thing again. Um, but what was interesting was that um, the, the cow uh, we wanted, who we were going to eat that summer, um, she, he didn't want to do it in the barn again because it made such a mess. So she, we tried to get her up to this, um, grassy knoll and we couldn't get her to go up there. And, she, and that's another thing I think that is just instructive is that somehow we have this idea that, that animals don't mind. They kind of think it must be a noble cause to die for the humans. <laughs> Something like that, you know. But they really are, I think they're the same way we would be. They just resist. They resist. They absolutely resist. And so the only way we're able to, to, um, to kill them and eat them is by overwhelming them with, with either, with force, some kind of force, um, technological force typically. So that's what we did. We, we had a rope around her neck. We had 30 kids. We tried to pull her and she was stronger than we were, so we, we didn't do it, couldn't do it that way. So we just put a chain around her neck and put it to the back of a pickup truck and four-wheel drive and started pulling her up there. And uh, I remember I was, I was in the back, I was one of the kids in the back of the truck, you know, going along and watching her getting pulled up to a little place. And um, well, what I still remember to this day is how we got almost up there and she broke the chain. She actually snapped the chain and the truck went lurching forward, you know, when that happened, everybody fell down. And I remember um, looking back and seeing this cow looking at us with her head, you know, to the side, standing there with this chain dangling off her neck, and she was silent, but she was being very articulate. You know, she was really t saying to me very loudly, "Don't do this, please, don't do this. I don't want to die." And so I remember, I think, on, on some level, a chain inside of me broke when that happened, and I remember thinking to myself, 
let's not do this. I, I saw her somehow really as a being who, wanted to, who had an interest in her life and wanted to live. And yet there was this other programmed part of me that saw her as, no, it's just a dairy cow that's here for us to use. She's hamburger. You know? So that was, that's the battle. You know, that was the battle within me. And between those two parts, I think the natural human eye that we all have that looks out of our eyes and sees a, a being rather than a thing, that's our vegan eye. That's our natural human wisdom, kindness, compassion. When we see naturally, that's what we see. But then there's this other dimension of ourselves that's been programmed and we look out of our eyes and we see a thing, just something to use. And you don't, you just kind of learn to disconnect, not feel, not about, not care, just don't care about it. And, or think, well, that's what I just got to do it, you know. So, um, so I went away to college, and uh, eventually, I still never met a vegetarian, but I started hearing more and more about it. And to make a long story very short, I, I ended up leaving college after I graduated and, and going, deciding to go on a spiritual pilgrimage. And I walked um, with my brother. We thought we'd go to California for, uh, to find cosmic consciousness. This was back in 1975. <laughs> And we got as far as Buffalo, New York, and we decided to head south. And we headed south, and we walked 20 miles a day all the way eventually to Tennessee, yeah, and uh, to a place we'd heard about called The Farm. The Farm in 1975 in, uh, was south of Nashville. It was the largest hippie commune in the world, about 1,000 people. And they were all vegetarians. In fact, they were what you would call today vegans, but nobody used that word because nobody had ever heard of that word back in 1975. But uh, they ate just a plant-based diet. And they did it for ethical reasons. They didn't do it for health reasons. They did it because they didn't want to cause misery to animals and they wanted to show that you know, you can, you can grow plenty of food to feed people. And so there we were at the farm and uh, so that's when I, I never ate, I've never eaten meat again in my life since I went there. And it was really the, for two reasons, I think. One, it was that um, they informed me of things that I think I already knew such as uh, the brutality of animal to or towards animals for food and how they chop off the, the, the beaks of chickens uh, and force them into these cages, you know, six or eight chickens so they don't pick each other's eyes out for eggs and how they kill all the males and grind them all up and feed them back to the females and how they castrate all the males uh, of all the species and how they always separate the babies from the mothers and just the whole brutality and horror of the entire of the thing and, and for, to literally hundreds of millions, billions of animals, just Niagara Falls of blood and suffering. And um, I, I saw all that, and at the, and at the same time, um, the, the good part of it really was that there was all this delicious plant-based food, <laughs> and they were happy, and they were healthy, and they had all these children that were, a lot of them were vegan from birth, you know, and they were strong and healthy and happy and doing great, and so it was like a no-brainer. It's like, great, you know, that's it. You know, so that was it, I never eat meat again. And for the next few years, I lived in meditation centers, mostly with people who were vegetarian, so they were eating dairy and eggs. And so I started doing the same myself. Uh, and but then I started getting the feeling um, about I remember remembering the, my Vermont dairy farm experience, remembering uh, what the animals go through, the cows and chickens go through for these products. And so, uh, but, uh, and right at that time, uh, so I gave up milk and eggs. And then uh, right after that, I went to Korea and lived in a Zen monastery in Korea as a monk. So I shaved my head and had robes on and I was, had a different name and a different, you know, just like a whole different identity and a whole different life where we would get up at 3 o'clock in the morning and just meditate the entire day until 9 o'clock at night and take a vow of silence for 90 days and just meditated and, 
And um, what, I, uh, what I think really impacted me was the fact that I realized that I was in a community that uh, was a vegan community um, also, the second time in my life after the farm. And, um, but it had been vegan for 650 years, you know, so it was not a new thing like it was back in 1975. The farm was only maybe four or five years old. This was 650 years of, of a tradition of generation upon generation, of century upon century of people living where they didn't eat any flesh of animals, any dairy products, any eggs. They wouldn't wear any wool or silk or leather. You wouldn't even kill a mosquito, really. I and mean, that would be so gauche to kind of like kill things, you know. The whole idea was to just be gentle, be tender, be kind, be loving, and, uh, and, and to look in, into oneself, not to try to change others, but to try to transform one's own consciousness to connect directly with the truth of being, which is uh, what we call, I guess, in Christianity, the Christ nature or the, or the Buddha nature. Anyway, so um, when I came back to this country, I felt like I had undergone a major change, like I had these like vegan in a sense, roots that went very deep into me and so I got my PhD at Berkeley and started being able to teach classes about um, in philosophy and, and uh, talking about these the ideas really of ethics and, and treating animals and humans and all these things and um, right around that time is when the seeds for this book came because I remember starting to feel that someone would write a book that would give the big picture of uh, our treatment of animals for food and how it affects us at a, such a profound level individually, psychologically, spiritually, and emotionally, but also how it affects our culture, how it affects the, all our institutions in our culture, how really, as I thought more and more and, and made these, all these connections between anthropology and sociology, getting my PhD it was in education, I just took from everything, you know, and, and religion and science and saw that actually the hidden visible vibrating hidden fury the core of our culture is this incredible slaughtering of millions of animals and that and then eating that it's so horrific and so vast and so massive and and then in our efforts to live in peace and harmony and justice and sustainability and wisdom and love are merely ironic They'll never bear any real fruits because we're, the actual prayer of our life is violence and death and misery to others because we're kind to those who can retaliate. You know, like if someone is strong and powerful, we're nice to them and we have, and they're in, we have whole elaborate systems in place to protect the interests of those whose interests deserve to be protected. But those other beings who we want to use, their interests are not protected. In fact, we get rewarded if we harm them. You know, if I, if I, if I go to into a restaurant and order ribs <laughs> or a bacon or something, you know, the, the effects are all positive. You know, people say, "Good choice. The ribs are great here." You know, and everything is positive. You just get rewarded for violence and brutality and death and killing. And and, and so we've been we've been forced to numb ourselves to the repercussions of our actions and how that harms not just the animals but the human beings that have really to do the horrific, horrific work that we would never have, want to have to do ourselves to eat this food. So um, so I, me I remember thinking someone's going to write a book that will give this bigger picture, this larger understanding of how everything is connected and how this, this sort of invisible uh, core here to the, to, uh, to the essence of our problems. And, and, and then I started telling Madeline, you know, someone's going to write this book and 
years went by, no one wrote the book, and we started traveling around, you know, <laughs> the Unity Churches, and I kept thinking, you know, I kept doing more and more research, and finally she said, you know, if you want to write that, if you want to read that book, you're going to have to write it. <laughs> so that was it, so I spent five years and worked on the book and wrote it, and uh, now it's out. And actually, it was chosen by Library Journal to be reviewed, which only one, maybe two, maybe two percent, I think, one or two percent of the books that come out every year are actually reviewed by Library Journal. It was reviewed, and it was recommended for all the libraries in the United States. And so it's like getting out there. We're in our third printing of the book. And um, the, um, the basic uh, idea, I've already told you, but I think the, um, the reason that the book, I think, has a certain um, urgency and a certain power is that all of us, I think, in our culture are trying to find how we can live in wisdom and, and with peace and sustainability on this earth. And there's this basic missing piece that no one seems to be willing to address. And so that's what this book addresses, you know, strongly. It addresses that, that dimension and puts, instead of having the, the, our cruelty to animals sort of as a peripheral problem like the other problems, it puts it right in the middle. And, and I think that's what we're, where it really should be because um, this is something that's ongoing and the, and the fact that we have so many people that have to do this work is really important to understand. I mean, we're not, the, the numbers of animals that we're killing are not trifling. It's not like just a few animals. We're talking about 10 billion land animals just in the United States alone. Land animals meaning birds and mammals. And about 20 to 25 billion uh, water animals, fish. So that's you know, 35 billion animals a year, which is, you know, 75 million a day, we have, like I say, you know, huge armies of people that do nothing but stab and brutalize animals. And, it, and, it, and the repercussions of that are horrific, really, for our culture. We have whole classes of people in, who are addicted to drugs and alcohol and violence that are doing this kind of work. <coughs> Martin Luther King said, violence anywhere hurts everyone everywhere. We're all connected. There's no way we can sort of relegate this horrific job of of brutalizing animals to a certain subclass of, of workers and say, uh, well, that's okay, let them do it. Because we, the, that violence comes back to us in all kinds of ways, not only as disease and fear and terror and needing drugs to cope with the fact that we have insomnia and we have you know, um, panic attacks and anxiety and depression and, and rage and all these things because we're eating that and forcing others into that but it comes in a whole variety of ways. And so once, the ancient spiritual teachings are really very simple. You know, the basic idea is, as you sow, so shall you reap. You know, what the basic idea is, whatever for happiness, whatever I would most want for myself, give it to someone else. Whatever I would most want for myself, give to others. If I want love, what's the best way to receive love? Be loving. If I want to be free, what's the best way for me to be free? Let others be free. <laughs> if I want to be uh, encouraged, What's the best way to feel encouraged? Encourage others. Now this is the basic teaching. And so if we are, if we are brutalizing and terrorizing uh, other living beings who feel just like we do, I mean, we know that this is the, one of the main things that's coming out now, actually. And finally, people are starting to do research on animals, stuff we already knew. Animals feel just like we do. They have a central nervous system with the same pain receptors we have. I and mean, we're animals. Gosh, they we're mammals. Uh, and we have psychological, like they do, they have psychological and social needs that if they're, if they're repressed, like for us, if we were just confined, I mean, they can, you know, they're doing that. I mean, our government is doing that. We're putting people in solitary confinement and driving them crazy. 
Uh, and we do the same thing to animals. We do like pigs are banging their heads against the metal crates. You know, they're they're driven insane by the treatment that we force them to endure, and they're very similar to us. And anyone who has a dog or cat knows that. If they know, you know, you know, if you step on their tail, they stop it. You know, get off my tail. <laughs> so this is what we do to these animals, and so we have to disconnect from our own compassion and our own true nature. And the other uh, spiritual teaching, like in the Zen tradition, I think this is a universal teaching, whatever we most forcefully ignore will control us the most. That's another important teaching. And, and in our culture, we very forcefully ignore what we do to animals for food. You probably know that if you're already a, a vegan or a vegetarian, you start trying to talk about this to your friends and relatives, how quickly they change the subject, <laughs> how quickly they want to talk about something else. Or, or just kind of lash out or something. And so we very forcefully ignore something that's actually uh, very important and essential. It controls us. And the other uh, teaching is that when we harm someone else, we harm ourselves more than we can ever harm them. We actually harm ourselves more because we become the agent of violence and we, we disconnect. And that really harms us, uh, if anything does spiritually. So. So those are uh, some of the universal principles. What I'll do maybe here just to kind of finish up, uh, because I'm, I think, I'm not sure what time we actually started, but it's getting, you know, it's almost nine. So I'll just, um, there's, I'll just kind of just very briefly go through the, um, through the main points that I think maybe we'll flesh this out a little bit and then uh, we can have some questions. There, the first couple of chapters just go into understanding our culture. The first chapter is about the, the power of food. It's, it's a very interesting. I don't have time really to go into that, but just to, just to understand, food is, we intuitively know, is a very powerful, sacred thing. It's the infinite universe feeding itself with itself. Every culture has recognized the profound um, sacredness of eating on every level, and, and every sacred ritual always has a feast. And, and uh, so food and religion and spirituality are deeply, deeply connected. The next chapter goes. It's called "Our Culture's Roots." This, to me, is the most fat, one of the most fascinating chapters. It just goes into the history of this, and it's very important to understand this. And I'll just say it very briefly. Our culture went through the last revolution 10,000 years ago, between eight and 10,000 years ago. Eight to 10,000 years ago, what happened? What happened was, in actually, ironically enough, in now what is now the country of Iraq, northeastern Iraq. People started for the first time apparently owning animals, herding animals, you know, owning them instead of just hunting them. You know, where they so animals that was a fundamental act of reducing. And before that, animals were considered mysterious cohabitants of a shared world, and they were respected. Uh, but once people started owning them, and they became property, they were reduced. And not only were they reduced, but pretty soon everything got reduced. The wild animals, I mean, not pretty soon, it took, it took, it took thousands of years. This is, it was a slow revolution. It started around eight to 10,000 years ago. It took, I'd say, about five to 7,000 years. By the time the historic period emerged, through, which was 3,000 years ago, we have the first writings. The oldest writings are about 3,000 years old, like the Epic of Gilgamesh and the Old Testament writings and uh, Iliad and the Odyssey and these other writings. Um, if you just read those, you can see by that time it's happened. We have the wild animals have been reduced because they are now simply pests or predators who might attack our cattle and our sheep and our goats. We're going to get rid of them. We just get rid of them. Women have been reduced. The status of women was profoundly reduced. 
By the time the historic period emerged, women are bought and sold like cattle, chattel property. Uh, you have the first slavery. Um, well, because whatever we do to animals, we end up doing to humans. So this idea of owning animals, it was an, a, not a very big jump to start owning people. And what also happened with it in this revolution, not only did we start owning animals and women got reduced, but a wealthy elite emerged. And so this whole thing where there was um, this, this class emerged who owned, they're the ones that owned the capital. Capital means head uh, in Latin. So they owned the head of livestock. They owned the sheep and the goats and the cows. And, they, and that was wealth. Cows and sheep and goats were money. That was wealth. And so they found that the fastest get-rich-quick scheme for, th for really for thousands of years was to then go and steal some other uh, elite's uh, livestock. And so that was the beginning of war. You had the very first wars emerged out of the desire to get others' you know, livestock. And so men who were either herders and or uh, fighters and they would fight, and so you have these first large-scale wars. The very first word for war is the old Sanskrit word gavya, which means the desire for more cattle. That's the very first word for war. And so, and if you lost the battle, it was bad news. I mean, it was a terrifying thing to lose because that means if you were a woman, you were, you became a concubine. If you were a male, you were typically castrated, became a slave. All the livestock became the property of the one who won. And these vicious battles went on for thousands of years. And, it, and really, men over this time uh, more and more became um, capable of sustained violence. You had to have, there was this whole new ethic emerged of the kind of cowboy mentality. You know, this, this tough, hard, disconnected man, not connected with his feelings, who was capable of cruelty and violence towards animals, because it takes a lot of violence and cruelty to contain and control cows. They are powerful animals. Sheep and goats. Cow. So the cattle cultures that emerged were the most violent cultures in the face of the planet. And they spread. They started taking over other cultures and they spread around the whole eastern Mediterranean. They spread up across the Mediterranean, up into Europe. And eventually they spread across the, and they came here. And they're spreading now and we're born into it. And that's what we born, we're born into is that culture. And it's a violent culture with violent gods and um, with, uh, that oppresses women and uh, sees itself as essentially predatory. And the reason we think we, you know, we don't see ourselves today as a herding culture, right? If you said today, are we living in a herding culture? Most people would say, no, that's not a herding culture. I mean, you don't even see any animals anymore. Just 100 years ago, it was obvious it was a herding culture, really. But today, the animals are just, they're, they're locked away in concentration camps, so you don't see them. But basically, we eat, we eat the same. In fact, we even eat more meat than ever, and, and milk and other things. So at the end of the day, back then, 10,000 years ago, what kept the whole thing going was the food. You know, at the end of the day, we eat our flesh and eat our milk and so forth. And it's the same thing today. So just understanding the, the history, I think, is very empowering because we realize that we can actually make a change. You know, that we don't we, we can be a force for the evolution of our culture and have a different history. So anyway, I will um, maybe desist from going into all these other chapters, but I'll just very briefly tell you there's a chapter on intelligence, um, which in some, one of the main points is that whatever, whatever problem we have that we don't seem to be able to solve, we are actively inflicting on animals for food. And this is a really interesting thing, and I can talk a long time about this, <laughs> but I don't want to. But I'll just say briefly, 
look at any problem we have that we can't solve. We are doing it to animals. And that's the thing, whatever we do to animals, we end up reaping it in ourselves. So for example, obesity is a, is a problem in our culture. It's a ex large and expanding problem. You just look at graphs of obesity and you just see this like, you know, it's just, and what are we doing to animals? We're learning to make them fatter and fatter. You know, animals are sold by the pound. We give them special hormones and special feed to make them really fat. After, you know, after only 45 days now, chickens are fattened up, fat enough, they, so fat they can't even walk. Same thing with turkeys and, and, and pigs and cows, all of them, and sold to slaughter. So we sow seeds of obesity in the animals. We reap it in ourselves. The same thing for osteoporosis. Osteoporosis is a really interesting one because um, osteoporosis is the loss of calcium in our bones. Our bones just, you know, get really brittle and it happens especially to women. And they, they get hip fractures and all this stuff. And what do we do to cows and chickens? We force them to overproduce milk and, and eggs. So for example, on a typical dairy, a cow in the wild naturally would give it the most, like in a bell curve, 25 pounds of milk a day and then it would taper off. In a, in a um, typical dairy today, even organic dairies are giving over 100 pounds of milk a day, about 110 pounds of milk a day for a longer period of time. How do you get these cows to give so much milk? You feed them a lot of cholesterol. A cow would never eat cholesterol, but scientists discovered if you put, if you enrich, it sounds so good, you enrich their feed. So that means they enrich their feed, <laughs> they feed them grain enriched with animal fat and cholesterol and protein, which they get mainly from fish and slaughterhouse waste, which means dogs, cats, roadkill, laboratory animals, and all the slaughterhouse waste, all that's, you know, it's, it's cooked and ground up and then, and then mixed in with grain. And so animals, so you get these cows eating huge amounts of animal flesh, and that makes them give a lot more milk and makes them give milk that has more fat in it, which is more profitable because it's the fat that was really profitable in the dairy industry because that's where you get more ice cream and butter and cheese, which are the high profit items. And so they give huge quantities of, of milk. And so because they give so much milk, they lose the calcium in their bones. And so these cows typically after only being four years old or at the most five years old, and a cow would live 25 years typically in the wild. When they're five years old at the most, they're worn out because they're impregnated when they're very young, after when they're only like a year and a half old, which would never happen in the wild. And then uh, as soon as they give birth to that baby, and, they're in, they're, it's a rape operation basically, they rape the, the female, they, when, when she gives birth to the baby, they steal the baby, which causes enormous anguish to both of them. They kill the baby, then they uh, impregnate her again. And so, and then while she's pregnant, she's lactating, which breaks down the, the health of any mammal very quickly. As soon as she gives birth to that baby, they steal the baby, they impregnate her again. She's, she's you know, lactating and pregnant simultaneously three cycles of that and they're completely worn out. They have severe osteoporosis from being given so much milk. It's a lot of calcium, the dairy industry, incredible hypocrisy. They say, get your calcium from milk, you know? And so we're stealing it from these cows. They go, they go off to be slaughtered for cheap hamburger meat. And they, this is what you read about, like in this, uh, this latest um, uh, travesty at, at um, what was it called? The Hallmark, you know, that Hallmark operation out in California. And, they showed people, you know, moving these, these non-ambulatory cows. Well, these are dairy cows that have osteoporosis whose bones break on the, because they have such severe, and they can't walk, they, their bones are shot. And so they, they just drag them around, they, they squirt water in their lungs and all these horrible things to get them to move. 